It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, uh, what's your favorite kind of booty? Um, <laughs> you're setting me up there, dude, <laughs> to say something completely non-PC. So I'm going to skip that. My favorite I, I'll, kind I'll, of booty. I'll take a whack at answering that. <laughs> I like big, fat, jiggly booties. Yeah. <laughs> um, like a number no. six Camelot, that kind of big, fat booty. <laughs> I like my booty to uh, clank like a cowbell. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, a, you know, I think even though I don't need any more, um, I think a number three Camelot is like a, is a nice find. I mean, I have more than enough, but uh, I don't know why. Just like maybe the color, just the size, like it, it has some import to it. But yeah. Do you um, find yourself getting very excited about like a just like your average standard run of the mill nut that you booty? <laughs> Fuck no, and I don't even like. <laughs> I I I mean, and kind of can think of in Squamish we were on the last pitch of like this ten pitch route behind these dudes that we'd like we'd caught up to a couple pitches previous and like they weren't quite slow enough to pass, but you know, it's like the end of the day and you're just like, fuck dudes, let's go. And then they stop on the last pitch and start to try to work on this stuck like HB cam, you know, like the one with the little trigger loop, like in the middle of the, yeah, like this total old piece of garbage. And I'm just like, I mean, you, Steph can, can repeat this. I am just like so fucking agitated and like, ready to get off this climb and ready like to get past these guys. So they, I climb right up on the dude and I'm like, come on, dude, let's go. And he, he goes and he was like, Oh man, I almost had it. And I just was like, I, I need an HB cam. Like I need a hole in my head, dude. Like who cares? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I very, I, you, I mean, but let, let's like harken back to being a dirt bag. Like it's one of the greatest things ever is to oh, booty yeah. a cam. I don't care how shitty and old it is. You're just like, you're like on, on the moon every anytime you can get a cam out of a route yeah number three cam i've i've never bootied a number three cam um so i don't know the the joys of that but that does sound like a nice find maybe I mean, one anytime day. you get a, a shiny actually like a shiny cam you know because then you have you also have this like little stoke of superiority that some you know newbie left like couldn't get this cam out because it's like barely scratched um <laughs> you know that's kind of like there's this little elevation but also like like i said you have sort of this elite like this little flash of elitism that goes yeah. with it um and then there's like you know there's obviously different types of booty because sometimes you know you you get a cam that's clearly been stuck and like they probably worked on it a lot of times actually those things will come right out because um the rock literally expands and contracts with cold um so you can come across something that was stuck and it'll come right out but then there's also like the bail cams and i don't know what kind of person you are but that also you know engenders a bit of elitism that somebody bailed off this climb that you are you know handily sending um 
but that can also go with rain and, and things like that. So I don't know. It, I, I kind of, in my older age, am a much more, um, like when I get bail cams off, I'm, you know, much more like, oh, I need to find out who's these were. I need to get these things back to these people as best I can. Um, versus like the stuck cam in the middle of nowhere. There's almost no way to know like whose cam that is, you know, there's no story to go with it. Um, but if it just rained yesterday and like you pull some cams off of something, like it's not going to be that terribly hard to find those people. Um, so I don't know. I mean, those are all thoughts that I've been having since we got this email about bootied cams. We did. We got a very um, exciting email um, from one of our very wise listeners who uh, has sagely turned to us to settle a score. We're kind of like the the judge in the, in this um in this episode here, Chris, which is exciting for me because I've always wanted to be a judge, but I never went to law school. Um, and, uh, turns <laughs> you out you don't have. need to go to law school to be a judge. Yeah, you, you can just have a podcast. Yeah. Or you could be, um, appointed by Donald Trump too. I think, I think they, <laughs> he's been, I, I think some of their, his judges sort of skipped a lot of the, the normal prerequisites, but that's a whole yeah. other thing. Yeah. Um, I'm probably just as qualified as them, but, yeah. uh, I think it could be a bit where be we do better. this. We, I might have floated this to you before, but yeah, a, a bit where people can submit their their um, their etiquette and and or um, you know rules questions, and we'll we'll uh, arbitrate their their yeah. problems. So that this who's might be the, the right, first in a series. Yeah. So can I hope you, it is can because you... I'm excited about this. <laughs> All right, let's get into the details of this story. Yeah. Um, Spray us down. Okay. So. Uh, this person, I'm, I'm going to just leave this anonymous because I don't think that we need to get names involved. Um, I'm not sure how this person, how comfortable this person is with us sharing this story, but it seemed like she, it is a she, uh, reached out and said that it would be okay if we talk about it on the, uh, on the podcast. Just so more of a she, grand jury type thing. <laughs> All yeah, close. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she and her boyfriend were out in the mountains in this alpine region, and they had heard of another party that tried to do this route, a 510R, and, um, you know, kind of like a big multi-pitch route in the mountains. And they had heard that this other party tried to do it, but the crux pitch was wet, and so they bailed. And so they kind of knew that there would be gear up on this wall, so... They wanted to do the route anyway, and but now they had this kind of additional bonus reason to go and do this route because they knew there'd be this booted gear there. Let's just pause there for one second, Chris. Do you does the um uh you know the the enticement of potentially finding bootied gear make a route more enticing to you? Is that is that a reason that you would choose to go do a route? When I was a dirtbag, yes. Nowadays, fuck no. And, yeah. and somewhere also in there, because um, I have incidences where I specifically went to get people's gear to give it back to them, even though I didn't really know them. So mm -hmm. in other words, I was like, oh, I could go do that route. So yeah, so there was some conversion where, no, I, I stopped like having little sort of, um, you know, bags of gold in my eyes, like a leprechaun when I heard about uh, a booty on a route. Yeah. And so this email, it doesn't explain exactly what the motivations were. If the motivations were, 
uh, pure genuine, like, oh, you know, these poor other climbers lost or, you know, have gear up on this wall. Let's go get it for them. Or if it was like, oh, booty, that could be ours. Like, let's go, let's go plunder the route. And so I, I'm guessing it was the latter, but it doesn't, the email doesn't specifically say like what the, what the motivations were. Um, but that's how I kind of read it. Is that, was that your interpretation of what, of how she framed it, Chris? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. All right. So onward with the story. So they go and do this route and, uh, when they go and do it, the, the crux pitch isn't wet. They, they get the bootied gear and they top out and come back down. The boyfriend posts on mountain project that they, uh, had done this route and that they'd cleaned a bunch to fix gear. And, and then after that, they go back into the mountains for another week and, they come back out of the mountains and then they have this interesting encounter. It's 11 PM at night. They're about to go to bed and they hear a loud knock on the door. The boyfriend gets up to answer and there is a woman there who is according to this email, quite upset and kind of saying like, you guys have my gear. What the fuck basically. And this confrontation ensues. Let's just pause right there. What do you think? (laughs) If you were sitting at home, you had just gotten back from a week in the mountains and at 11 PM, which is already two hours past my bedtime, some crazy lady who's screaming at you comes to your door demanding that you give her your cam, her cams back. What would you do? Man, I don't know. Like, my instinct would to definitely be to get pretty much like in back in that person's face. Depend. <laughs> I mean, if they're being aggressive, then that's. I mean, that's just a reaction that I would have in the middle of the night, banging on my van door or my house door or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Like, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think I would yeah. be aggressive back to this person. I know you would. Um. <laughs> Um, (laughs) yeah, you definitely would. I'm not sure how I would act. I would probably, um, you know, kind of diffuse the situation as best I could and then just post, um, endless angry, uh, evening sends (laughs) articles, tearing this person's reputation to shreds for the next, the rest of my life. Um, but, uh, so what was the basis of this woman's problem? Oh, it's worth what? Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's just worth mentioning that this is obviously we just have one side of the story. It's possible that um, the the person in question might ha- see it differently. They maybe would say that they weren't angrily, uh, you know, angrily castigating these these people. Well, wait, over, wait, wait. Gear. I think the hour of the night, um, mm-hmm. all already. I mean, if this person were to say like, because this was in uh, this was in a camping area. Um, for climbers kind of mm-hmm. kind of for everybody but um i think the 11 o'clock hour if that's you know accurate is uh already aggressive even if you're even if your tone of voice is nice you wait it's the middle of the night it's dark out like right. you don't bang i mean having someone bang on a van door in the middle of the night all automatically puts the people on edge because they think they're like the authorities are there they're camped in the wrong spot you know so right. yeah it's the 
the person was already in the wrong of not waiting until the morning coffee hour to saunter up and deal with this. Yeah. That's my opinion. You can't bang on somebody's door at 11 o'clock without it being automatically aggressive. I mean, you, you kind of like assume that if it's if someone's like angry at 11 p.m., they're probably drunk or something. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's just the thing, right? <laughs> Certainly, you wake up to that, you are on edge. Um, yeah, so anyway. So the other thing that this email, the other kind of uh, thread of this story is that this person whose gear... Uh, who you know? Who left the gear? Bailed off this route. Apparently, I tried to reach out to these climbers on social media, like via d- DM, and um, never got a response. And in- interpreted that silence as that they were just trying to like make off with her, with her gear. I find that to be an obnoxious thing to assume because I've uh, not everyone's on social media all the time. Not everyone sees DMs. It's like. There's a million ways. There's like a, just a million like DM threads. Like if you have, you know, all the different social media apps or whatever. So I would never assume that people would have seen my like, you know, Instagram DM or whatever it was. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Instagram thing too has the, your people you're not following go into that other file. And I personally right. like, I glance at it once in a while, but there's tons of stuff in there I don't bother with. Yeah, so while these guys are in the mountains, according to them, they, this is, you know, I'll just read the email because it, I think it's interesting about the, the progression of messages that um, the aggrieved woman sent. It started out, hey, I saw your tick on Mountain Project. I think you have my gear. I'd love to get it back and would offer some cash for it. And then a couple days go by, she sends another message of just question marks. And then another day or two goes by. That's a third message which with a much more hostile tone, uh, more or less saying, stop ignoring my messages. What kind of shitty morals do you have that you won't return gear that is not rightfully yours? So a couple of interesting things there. One is that she offers to pay them to get her own gear back. What do you think of that? I think it's that's pretty good etiquette. I don't think cash is usually the thing that, that comes across, but I think like the traditional thing is a six pack, right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, or a bag of coffee or something, something like that. But I think it's certainly if you failed and then someone else got your gear, especially from a remote location, it certainly is worth some payback to be like, yeah, thanks for getting that. I, I think that's, I mean, in my lifetime, I've definitely been in those transactions before and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't quid pro quo, like you can't have your gear unless I get some beer, but um, <laughs> I just is kind of the right That's thing That's a bumper to do. sticker right there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know what I mean? And, and so um, the cash is a little much, but I mean, she made the offer. I'm, you know, I believe in my heart of hearts that these climbers would have refused cash just because it. I think it just seems a little bit out of the etiquette, but nevertheless. If the glove doesn't fit, it. you must quit. <laughs> if you got no beer you can't have your gear <laughs> <Have> your gear <laughs> yeah and just to be clear it's not compensate you're not directly compensating them for the cost of the, what the gear is it's not like you're buying your gear back it's the no. it's a token gesture of of gratitude for retrieving something that is yours mm-hmm. totally so that kind of leads me to another uh, question i have for you chris whose gear is it once if you booty gear off of a route do you have some kind of claim to owning it i think you do 
like a sketchy claim, but I think that within, I mean, and I've posted about this before, an article that actually got kind of the rounds off of BJ Sabara's site, Splitter Choss, um, called Don't Be an Asshole, which mm-hmm. was kind of about this a little bit. I think you you have this like slight ownership, but it comes with a responsibility to make an attempt to get it back. And again, we're talking, if you find some nut, you know, stuck nut or a stuck cam on some pitch, like that's a whole different game. Like it's, it's really unlikely that that matters that much. And you're going to like find the person. I don't think, do you know what I mean? It's a situational thing, but if you're looking at gear in this case where they knew party bailed in the question, and actually I'll, I'll leave that question. But if they knew someone bailed off of it, did, but they didn't know who it was, but they're, if they had that information, they're very close to knowing who it was. Do you know what I mean? They're only a couple degrees away. But so in this situation, yeah, let me jump I think in. That, let me jump in and read they, the email. Okay. Um, because this explain that answers your question right oh, here. So, yeah. So she she writes. So this leads us to our typical rules for bootied gear. We try to return anything simply left at a crag or, or gear that seems to be used in a rescue attempt. We've also happily returned gear to people who have posted on forums requesting it back. And have always uh, received something in exchange for our efforts to get it unstuck, haul it out, or whatever the situation is. What we haven't done, with the exception of um, forgotten or rescue gear, is go excessively out of our way to find the owners of stuck gear or bail gear left on a route. Um, we used to believe that this was one of the costs of of entry and climbing. So yeah, that's kind of they're kind of mimicking what you just said. Yeah. So I think I I mean you know you sort of have this ownership of like as time goes by and you make your good faith efforts, then yeah, I think you for, you forget about it because you don't have to like, you know, spend weeks putting notes out and trying to find these people. You, you do the requisite thing. And I, I, and I think their problem with this whole thing is, is how fast this, this sort of escalated to accusations of them being thieves and a climber, not having some sort of, understanding that social media doesn't always work that fast because I mean, if they had no intent of returning it, they would never have posted the mountain project thing to begin with. So, mm-hmm. so I think really like the whole issue is the escalation with which this woman turned to accusing them of being thieves and of having low morals or whatever, yeah. you know, against the evidence that they had already shown that they were willing to return it. And certainly they would have gotten around to finding those messages, I, I believe. How much of um, that woman, uh, this woman's anger is wrapped up in either embarrassment or just like a feeling of having just, you know, failed on a route or something like that? Like, I don't know, what, oh. like some kind of negative, negative emotion around that's that's unrelated to the bootied gear, but more just about having failed on a route. Man, I mean that's some deep psychology there. I don't know. It, it it's possible, but I think one of the things that's missing a little bit is something that the emailer said, which is, you know, with stuck gear, it's like the price you pay. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a certain level of that that goes with bailing as well. It's great to get your beer, gear back, okay? And and you know, you have a right to get your gear back. I think to a certain extent, but part of you has to also be like, if my gear never returns, that's the way it goes. You know, it, it's like you did fail. 
you did sort of get a little smackdown and it it'll sting and it stings a bit because you lost some gear and you you know that's like a when people get gear stuck it's like like i was saying about this elitism of getting it out you're like oh some gumby got this stuck or had to leave it or whatever so yeah it's probably mixed in there but i think what's also missing is this idea that in the end the fact that this escalated so quickly with with her anger I think just kind of reveals that there wasn't much humility in the fact that it's like, yeah, I left, I mean, I left behind a couple hundred dollars worth of gear, you know, mm-hmm. a few cams. It's part of the biz. You know, it's like you lose stuff in climbing. You get it. And I've always said that if you climb long enough, your sort of booty scales, like they, they actually kind of flatten, you know, in the beginning you lose a lot of shit cause you suck and you're a Gumby and shit mm-hmm. happens and you can't, and you don't know how to remove gear. You don't have the tricks and, and then as you get better, it kind of like balances out because you start finding stuff and um, maybe the embarrassment, but also this kind of lack of just realizing that like in the end, your gear might be gone and you just got to like accept it because you blew it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That And that was kind of the point I was about to make was that a lot of climbers, especially newer climbers, treat their racks like they're heirlooms, like they're going right. to you know have them for the rest of their lives and pass them down to their their children, but it's not, they're tools. They're, you know, they're temporary tools that you use to do something that you love to do. And sometimes, and it's not even that expensive. Like, I mean, climbing gear is like relatively cheap compared to, I don't know, buying a new mountain bike or something like that, you know? So the, a few hundred bucks, it's expensive enough where you don't obviously want to leave gear every time you go climbing, but if you have to do it like a few times a year, it's just not that big of a deal. I don't think. And stuff just disappears. I mean, I've like, I just look at my rack and I'm like, whatever happened to that number, number one, you know, like I have, I don't know where it is. I have no idea, (laughs) but it's not like uh, I go like ballistic and start freaking out. (laughs) And I mean, and it's interesting you say tools, you know, because I am sort of a amateur carpenter and, you know, remodeling my house and stuff and yeah it's it's like when i lose something it kind of agitates me but it's just gone and it's like yeah i gotta go buy a new one or like my tape measure fucking bends and snaps and you're like man i've had that tape measure for 10 years it's like boo fucking who i gotta go buy a new tape measure so yeah this is a slight digression from what we're talking about but you get the sense that the people who kind of treat their gear like heirlooms are the ones who do those obscene gear closet racks where everything has its own little hook and uh you know place and um it's all on display in their in their garage yeah. or whatever um <laughs> yeah it's like more like trophied as that, that's what they you need like a whole wall of bootied gear like that is just uh yeah that just shows your spoils from well all yeah and, and, i mean going back to sort of like the sting i i actually posted or, or i don't know i made a comment or something about how leaving a, a screw link on a beaner on a sport climb is like super lame. Like where you have your, your hardware store link on your harness. And when you fucking bail, you put that there uh, instead of leaving a quick draw or whatever. And which makes it in the way. And like a lot of times if it's a fat one, like you're the next person's draw, like hangs funny. And I've even heard at least one story of a carabiner breaking because of the way it, it levers against one of mm-hmm. those things. And I'm just like, no, you, if you have to come down for any reason, it starts raining, but mostly probably because you can't do the next move and get to the next bolt and get to the anchor, then leave a quick draw. 
and it'll be like this little sting reminder that you had to fucking take one of your precious pieces of gear and leave it behind. And maybe that sting will like make you try harder the next time, you know, like, and it's still like a $12 or $13, $14, like not even a meal at like Chipotle, you know, to leave your fricking reminder. And then, you know, yeah, the next person gets your, gets your draw. Like that's the way it goes. And I, I just yeah. think like and the quick link is like three yeah. bucks and the carabiner is like six. Like it's not yeah. even that big of a difference. Yeah. And it, oh, well, they're more, they're even more than that, that the, the screw links, but it just fucking puts this thing on this climb that somebody else has to get down. And a lot of times they seize up and you need a wrench to get them off. And then mm-hmm. they're there forever, like bugging everybody just cause you couldn't fucking do the next move to get to the next bolt. So, you know, I, I just think like there is this like acceptance this humility of like, okay, I just got a beat down. I need to pay a price for it. This is the price. Mm-hmm. And if it works out, I find that shit again, great. But alas, next time I'll try not to get in that situation. All right, last question I have about booty gear okay. for you, Chris. Um, to what lengths do you think you would go to get like some stuck gear out of a route? So let's say you're seconding and you're cleaning the pitch and there's like a fixed number two uh, Camelot or something, you know, fixed like it's like shoved way into the back of the crack. Are you going to slow down your partner and spend 15 minutes trying to get that out? Are you going to hang on the rope and try to wiggle it out with a nut tool? How are are you going to focus, be just focused on just trying to like free the root or whatever it is and, and not worry about it? These days, less and less am I likely to worry about it. But it also just depends, like if you look at it and your experience tells you that, oh, I think that thing will come out in a minute or two, I'll spend it or I'll hang on the rope to see if I can get it out of there. Because the other thing I I have, this whole issue is, is that it's also garbage. And many of us have climbed routes where there's some like, you know, 1986 double stemmed red Camelot in there that's like completely bashed to pieces and it's like the cables are broken everything else and aesthetically that's a piece of garbage that's it might as well be a fucking like you know pbr can shoved in there so you know so i think that fixed gear littering roots that are otherwise pristine is you know it's worth like taking a minute to try to get it out of there whether it's a nice piece that you want or not but certainly a, a glance will often tell you like oh no that's thing that thing's there for all time or like i said it's pretty new so it hasn't been there very long and it might come out i recently just did that exact thing where i hung on the rope and 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 dug a cam out of there but only because i didn't know it was booty i thought it was my partner's and um where we were climbing was real loud so we couldn't talk to each other on the pitch and so i spent a good like 10 minutes fucking with it and i got it out using some like advanced techniques got to the belay and then he was like oh no that's not mine i thought because he had put a piece right next to it. And so he kind of thought that that would have been a good enough signal that it wasn't his. Um, but anyway, we bootied a nice little number three uh, or point three Camelot. That was that was pretty what nice. What route was so. that on? Um, I can't tell you. It was, <laughs> was a secret say, route if, in a if, secret if I, area. <laughs> if there's any listeners out there who lost a point three Camelot, they can show up at Calusa's house at 11 p.m. and <laughs> bang on, bang on the door. No, I, yeah, I did, we did not post on Mountain Project about our number th- 0.3 Camelot that we booted off this route. <laughs> and, and even if it wasn't in an area that doesn't need any advertising, um, I wouldn't have. <laughs>
because <laughs> it's just one cam in the middle of nowhere. And sorry, you 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 paid a small price for your climb that day. And now it's mine, all mine. <laughs> Do we have a judgment? Is there was there anywhere we were going with this thing? Um, that's a good question. I am on the side of the email writer. I think that this person was kind of out of line and rude, and mm-hmm. that she shouldn't have expected to get her gear back. Oh. But because she knew who the people were who had her gear, she could have been way cooler about asking for it back and less less demanding, um, more humility a little bit. I don't know. She could have started by coming at 9 a.m. instead of 11 p.m. That would have been an improvement. but That would have um, been a vast improvement. But yeah, I wouldn't. if I were her, I wouldn't expect to get my gear back. And if I did get it back, it would have been, it would have felt like a bonus. And that actually right there is the key to the whole thing. Don't expect to, but it's nice when you do. Can I, can I, um, can I tell a egregious booty story yes. of my own? Okay. So another Indian Creek story, people. Ding. But <laughs> drink. We were we were climbing with this huge, you know, group of people as you do. Everybody had brought their massive racks. Like we had a pile of gear that was like ten sizes deep or ten deep in every size and like all these huge cams and and basically we were doing the days where we were just like hey do you have enough of these can i borrow some of those and like the racks were getting all mixed up and we would generally just like do the the gear tangle in the morning before we left so at the end of the day you just put whatever you had in your pack and left so you didn't really know where your shit was so in all of that we left behind at the catwall this giant rack like we had enough gear that we didn't miss a rack of like 30 cams that was had big cams on it, all this shit. Just somebody left it lay at the base of a climb. So the next morning we figure out that it's gone and we're like, oh fuck, we left that rack up there. Like no alarm. We're just like, yeah, we'll go up there and get it this morning, you know? So 9 a.m. We go back to the catwall. We there's one party there. We're like, hey, did you guys see a rack? They're like, no, no, we didn't. And we're like, huh? And we like spread out and look around the, and it's fucking gone. This giant rack of cams is gone. Jesus. And we're just like, what? Like 12 hours going? later. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like overnight. There was one party there actually when we left. And so we, we started to be like, okay, okay, who were those people? What was the last car? Like this green, it was like this green car, I think, or green truck or whatever. So we actually find those people the next day because now we kind of freak out and we're like looking around and wondering what we're going to do. We, um, we put it, first of all, we put a note on the gate. Um, and also we're, we're in Indian Creek, so we're not connected, but this is pre much of social media. So, so mm-hmm. there is no real way to like deal with this like they in the modern times. So we put a note on the gate that's like, Hey, we left this rack up here and put our number on it. So then we find these people that were at the cliff after us and they were like, yeah, we saw it, but we left it because we figured shit. Yeah. You're coming back which is is kind of amazing, okay? So then, like, a couple days later, we're just like, fuck, it's gone. Like, we have no idea where it is. We put notes everywhere we're supposed to put notes, all the different kiosks. There's a note on the gate. Like, hey, we lost this rack. It becomes actually this thing where everybody at the in the creek at the time, like, felt like everybody knew about this rack because we talked <laughs> to so many people about it. So then we go to the gear shop in Moab, and we put a note there on their board. 
we're with Jonathan Thiessing, who works at Climbing Magazine. And so he's like, yeah, I can probably, you know, get everybody whose cams were on that we can at least get a good deal on them. We'll try to replace them. And we kind of just forget about it. So weeks later, we get a call. It's this person that I know, this woman that I know. And she's like, yeah, we have your rack. We're in Gunnison. And we're like, thank God. And we go and get it. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, we had a case of beer. I think, uh, I think, you know, of all things, Jonathan offered him a free subscription to Climbing Magazine, which, <laughs> which was worth something back then. And, you know, and we get it back. We're totally psyched. And I know these people. It, it's this guy that, that climbs in the creek a fair bit. I know his, uh, his girlfriend, the woman who called us. And it's all over, right? So then you fast forward a couple, like three years, and I happen to be in Argentina, and that woman is there, okay? And we end up hanging out a lot, actually, drinking beers and shooting pool and stuff. And actually, we end up staying at the same place together. And so one afternoon, this woman is like, yeah, I have to tell you what went down with that rack. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, it ended my relationship. I was like, what? So they actually, we didn't know this, but they were actually the last people up there. They had just parked at the different parking lot and they walked by the rack, her and her boyfriend. And they, they were like, oh man, you know, same thing. She was like, no, whoever's it is, they'll be back. Like, let's just leave it. And they, they leave and they actually go to Moab and they go to a movie and they come back and this guy is so like fiending on this rack. Oh my God. That he convinces her that they should go get it. Okay. <laughs> and so they go up to get the rack in the middle of the night, like at midnight, speaking of the 11 o'clock pounding on the door, come down and get the rack. Okay. And, and they're like, you know, oh, we'll, we'll find the people. And if they don't show up, we'll get this rack, you know? So they leave, but they're climbing in the creek a little bit more. So, she says that a couple days later, they see a note and God, how did it go down? This is all getting a little bit vague, but she like went and got the note and they, she got back in the car and like put the note on the dashboard and she went to call later, like a couple days later, she went to call the number. It was not the right number, but it turns out that that dude, while she wasn't looking literally went up and took a pen and like changed one of the numbers of oh the my fucking God. yeah so she doesn't know any of this okay she just tries to call the number and it doesn't work and she's like a bummer so they you know they go home so at some point this guy admits to her like a few weeks later that he did that that he changed the number on the note and like <laughs> Basically, like, I stole this rack and blah, 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 blah. And they have this full fucking blowout. And the way she talked about it was like another piece of evidence on like a bunch of fucking evidence that this guy was not a great guy. Yeah. And and it kind of was like the last straw that kind of broke the back. And that's and after that is when she actually went on kind of a mission to try to find out whose rack it was. And she called the shop in Moab and asked if anybody had been asking about this rack. And they were like, yeah, there's this note that's been here for weeks. Like, here's the number. And then oh she my called. God. Yeah. And basically it like tore their relationship asunder, this whole rack thing. Isn't that insane? Like, that's insane. Oh. <laughs> like, 
Guilty. That's like guilty. Guilty. Yeah. Anyway, that's like the most uh, honestly that's an like amazing story, Chris. It's a, the most <laughs> egregious booty story I've ever heard, and it's in and I was part of it. So, I mean, you can imagine just how desperate we became. Like that many cams, like just gone, like in twelve hours, and just so mysterious. We're just like, who would do this? How are we not finding this rack? Like somebody knows where this rack is, you know the lure of like a rack of cams for a dirt bag like it totally like turned this guy into a full-on like conniving thief oh, a little golem like, a little golem my precious <laughs> jeff jackson is easily one of climbing's most prolific route developers and greatest writers and storytellers former editor of rock nice magazine Jeff currently teaches creative writing in Maui, where he's developed hundreds of new rock climbs and crags. Yeah, you're, you're mentioning Gavilan and the, the re-interest in Gavilan. And, and uh, it, it makes me think about climbing in Maui somewhat. The, really? the whole like weird, you know, occurrences that happen out in the desert. It's like this, this island has kind of got that vibe. In many ways, I've had these weird, like unexplainable encounters and happenings here more than anywhere else, including out in the desert, which was, you know, pretty rife with the supernatural. Yeah, were you surprised that those guys got all psyched on your a little bit long lost project out there in uh, in the desert? Yeah, I was just completely, completely surprised anybody would go out there, you know. After Andrew and Boone went out there and they're just like, dude, these bolts suck, man. <laughs> and uh, and it's a long approach. And uh, I don't know. It, it, did, it did seem strange. On, on the one hand, it seems strange. Uh, and it surprised me. On the other hand, it is a pretty epic route. You know, it's consistently steep. It's got like modern kind climbing, you know, like tufa climbing. And uh, I always thought, you know, that that project of all the things that I did was one of the most fun, mo most sport climby uh, big walls that I, I had ever been on. So, yeah, on the one hand, I was surprised because it's in the backwater, <laughs> completely like, you know, nowhere land, difficult to get to, only one route, this solitary wall in the middle of nowhere. But it, on the other hand, it's got uh, really cool modern climbing. So, yeah, both surprised and then not surprised. Yeah, of course, we're talking about that um, route now because it's um, it's a film that Savannah Cummins just uh, put together about um, La Popa, um, just a remote big wall in Mexico that... Some of your stories, Hefe, enticed me and uh, Dan Mursky and Boone Speed enough to go out and, and check it out for ourselves. We didn't make a successful repeat of the route, it, it, mostly because it was super cold, but also, as you just alluded to, the <laughs> the hardware was um, less, uh, uh, wasn't quite up to our uh, our standards or our snuff for mid mid-2000s era climbing. We couldn't actually fit like the modern carabiners in like some of the links in the anchors. I think that was like part of it. Like, <laughs> like our carabiners are too big for the the chain that that was there. Um, yeah. But so I just but made mostly... that shit up. Is basically I just went to the hardware store and was like, uh, 
how can I engineer an anchor out of this stuff without having to buy, you know, expensive real anchors? Yeah. yeah, I just put like a bunch of washers and then over a chain link and and not surprisingly, it it didn't work very well for the long term. You know? <laughs> and so thank, yeah. thank goodness those girls went out there and replaced and updated all that stuff in a really heroic effort. I mean, I can I can um, just uh, attest to the quality of the climbing that we saw. We didn't we didn't top out the route. We did the first half and um, just amazing, amazing tufas, amazing pockets and features, and just like sick overhanging limestone. I mean, it's like a nine hundred foot wall that's more or less you know whatever fifteen degrees overhanging or something. You know, Honold was the one that repeated that finally. Several people had gone out, not just you and Dan and Boone, but uh, Leo Holding went and tried it. And, and several people had gone out there, uh, a bunch, a whole a whole list of folks went out and uh, for some reason <laughs> made the trek out into the middle of nowhere and got on that line. But uh, Alex repeated it. And there are two pitches, 200 foot pitches that are, they got to be like 45 degrees overhanging, man, you know, like 30, 45 degrees, 40 degrees overhanging, something like that. And of course, Honold strung the two, you know, 40 degree overhanging 100 foot pitches together in one pitch on site and said, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's really steep, really steep, big holds and really cool. That upper half of the wall gets quite, kicks back quite a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting too, is like Jacob uh Cook, you know, he he actually fully cites our conversation on the Enormacast from like 2012 as being the thing that got him psyched to go out there and, and do it. Um and then when they encountered even, you know, whatever 10, 15 years later than Andrew that gear, that got them and then, you know, his wife Bronwyn psyched to go out there and do the the replacement. And I don't know, it's just like you don't really hear about that kind of thing very often where, you know, that somebody puts that amount of effort on somebody else's route, you know, to get it back up to par so that they can climb it. So she, you know, I, I talked to her a couple months ago and she's just was really inspired by the climbing. And it's like, this route needs to be updated so people can come and do it so I can go and do it, you know, safely. And so, yeah, it's pretty sweet that there's modern hardware on it. And, um, you know, it's out there now when that, I think in that echelon with like El Gigante and, you know, the, uh, your other route, El Sendero Luminoso, like as I think is like maybe this cool triumvirate of these Northern Mexico, like, you know, sport big walls, if you will. Like I mentioned it to Bronwyn on the show, like, you know, that could be like some, some sort of triple crown thing to go do is to do El Sendero and then go do El Gavilan and then go down there and do El Gigante and be like the, 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 you know, the proud, like the I Mexican said, Northern triple Mexico. Crown. Yeah, the Mexican triple crown, at least <laughs> Northern Mexico, you know. Although yeah. I don't think there are big walls. Oh, there's El Trono Blanco too over in, in Western. Blanco. Yeah, so, but. That's a whole yeah. different kind of granite yeah. thing. Yeah. Though. So anyway, I'm, I'm throwing say. that out there. Yeah. Well, one of the things yeah. you just kind of referenced, Hefe, was this idea of like magic. And that was kind of uh, the, your stories about uh, Los Remotos and, and La Popa, uh, and the, the kind of magical creatures that you saw out there, and uh, whether they were peyote induced or not, is is remains to be a, a question that's answered. But um, 
you I was, I was uh, completely sober completely sober <laughs> i was you, i was completely sober you uh well we <laughs> were we, we 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 took your advice to uh, eat the peyote that we found on the on the trail out there <laughs> and um and that may have influenced our our success rate on the wall but you seem to attend to uh or just maybe be perceptive to the salience of magic in in life in a way that i don't think someone like Alex Honnold is, and perhaps that was his his reason for success on the wall is he he just marched up there and strung pitches together and just dispatched with, you know, relatively easy climbing for him. Um without just kind of being attenuated to the the um the magic of the the place and the the strangeness of it and the you know the flora and the fauna and the the creatures that come out at night. And the things that you see in the sky, which which we did see um, out there in the desert, and so I don't know. I, I I don't know if there's a question in there. I just love to hear your thoughts on how how have you kind of cultivated this? I would call your life a magical life in some sense, or it certainly has that element to it. Like, how are you just in tune with with that aspect of it, and how does that kind of cross into? you know, what climbing is for you. Yeah, A.B., well, that's, that's, I think that that's why people do go out and do that, that route, El Gavilan. That's like one of the primary attractions aside from the great climbing is that there is this, you know, Benji and I did have an encounter with, uh, with the horse people, for lack of a better word, Naguales, whatever you want to call them out there, where we saw the first night that we walked up there and spent the night, we saw these shapes in the fog. And um, and heard voices speaking, and uh, and there's legends of that area uh, about you know things that walk the night, and uh, and that's why I think why people go out there, and, and everybody that goes out there has that experience, except for Alex Honnold for some reason. Like you say, maybe there's maybe the spirits, maybe God Himself has turned His back. No, no, I, I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why he Alex, gets away Alex with made all a the deal, shit he um, gets away with. Yeah, he made a deal with the wrong spirit, but it got him a, a the El Cap free solo. Um, yeah, I, I said when he soloed Sendero that he's been so bad he may never get another visit from Santa Claus. That was one of the things that I wrote about that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, man, I don't know. You know, I, I consider myself a skeptic, a, a rational skeptic in, in many ways. And yet, uh, somehow, I uh, continue to have these, like, encounters, these unexplainable encounters, like here on Maui, you know? And I'm not sure what that is, whether I'm attenuated to, to spirit or, or what it is. But I, I am open to the possibility of an encounter with things that are larger than me, with the unexplainable, with the mysterious, you know? I mean... I'll tell you a story about uh, when I first arrived here on Maui, and, and maybe it'll answer this question, this this non-question in one way or another. But so when I got here, I I uh, was immediately greeted by some folks that were climbers, and they were very excited because they knew that there was rock here on Maui, but they weren't really sure how to go about developing it. So. I made made friends with a couple of guys. One was a, a gentleman named Neil Stott, 
And he's a professor, a fellow professor here at the University of Hawaii, the Maui College. And Neil introduced me to a guy named Jason Manganon. And those two guys went around uh, in the first week that I was here and showed me some walls that were potentially good to develop. And one of the walls that we checked out was this wall, uh, it's called Kauai, Kauai. K-O-A apostrophe I. And it's a big wall. You can see it uh, if you surf. Uh, Thousand Peaks is the name of the break. And you can look in. And the locals call it the turtle. And it's just this big wall. And they're like, dude, you got to check this out. Let's walk up to it. And so one day we walked up to it. It takes about an hour to hike up to the wall. And Jason was telling me about his experience of growing up in Hawaii. He's a, he's a native Hawaiian. And he was telling me some of the stories that his grandmother used to tell him in a book called the Obake book. And it has all these supernatural stories. And he was saying, you know, the most common ones are about Pele, you know, the, the god of the volcano. Pele is, will appear as a woman. She's always smoking. She's got a white dog. And you'll see her oftentimes she'll be like hitchhiking and you'll pick her up and and strange things will happen. And he said, you know, then there's the stories about the, uh, you know, um, it's a, uh, the five corners in haiku and strange, you know, things will happen at the five corners. Really strange things will happen in Yao Valley, which is Mark Twain called Yao Valley, the Yosemite of, of the South Pacific. It's got these giant towering uh, jungled peaks in there that are up to like 5,000 feet tall. And then he said, there's also stories about the night marchers. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. And in the meantime, we're hiking up as we're, we're hiking along and talking. I'm like, what? what's the night marchers? And he said, OK, well, the night marchers are these beings that appear at night. And you'll, you'll hear them. First, you'll hear the drums. And the drums will start beating. Boom, 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 boom. And then when you hear the drums, you know the night marches are coming. And when you hear the night marches coming, you take off all of your clothes, including all of your jewelry, and you get down on your hands and knees, and you cover your head, and you don't look up, and you pray in Hawaiian. And sometimes, if you're lucky, as the night marchers pass, They'll say, one will step forward and the retinue of warriors will step forward and say, he's mine, she's mine, they're mine, right? Indicating that you're of their lineage, right? And if not, they'll kill your ass and you become a night marcher that walks the night for all time. And so I was like, oh, cool. Well, where, where do these things appear? You know what? He's like, oh, well, you know, they, they'll appear in uh, Yao Valley. Sometimes they'll appear in uh, uh, the cave of the Screaming Keiki, this cave where they, back in the day, prehistoric times, they hid their children during an attack and it collapsed, right? And there's like these petroglyphs all over the place. It's in Maui and all these children were killed. And they'll often appear in Olawalu, the Valley Olawalu which is the place where from Iao to Olawalu in the 
biggest battle in Hawaiian history when Kamehameha from the big island of Hawaii came over to subjugate Maui and unite all the islands. The king of Maui fought Kamehameha and so many bodies stacked up that the river was dammed with bodies and ran red with blood. And the Ali'i and the king escaped up and over Yao and came down through Olawalu. And Olawalu, so it has a lot of mana. He's like, it's got choke mana. Choke mana. Choke means a lot. Olawalu's got choke mana. The other thing that happened in Olawalu was Metcalf, who was the second contact of the British with the Hawaiians, I believe he was a British soldier, came to uh, Maui and he anchored off Lahaina. And some Hawaiians swam out and stole a couple of his boats. And they break they would break the boats up and, and use the nails. They were very they were highly valued. But these guys uh, pissed off Metcalf so bad that he found out where they were and they had gone to Olawalu because Olawalu is what's called a Pu'u Honua, which is a place of refuge. And if you got in trouble, even with the king, even with the Ali'i, the royalty, you could go to Olawalu and be safe. You were protected. No bad could happen to you while you were in Olawalu. Well, what Metcalf did is he sailed his boat over there and he put a kapu, a tabu on one side of the boat so that all the people that came out would have to approach one side. And at the time, it was considered that, you know, the white folks had a lot of mana. And so they would send the girls out to have sex with the sailors. One reason why uh, Hawaii was so popular back in the day, all the sailors are like, yep, we're going there. So all the people wanted to to go to to meet with Metcalf, any of these sailors, it was considered a lot of mana. So Metcalf invited them all to get into their canoes and boats and paddle out and visit the boat. And he rolled all of his cannons to one side of the boat and loaded them with ball and shot and massacred the entire village of Olawalu as they paddled out to visit the boat. And so not only did he commit this horrendous atrocity, but he polluted the place of sanctity, right? He committed this in a place that was sacred and it was protected. And so it was doubly heinous what he did. And so these days there is a burial ground right as you cross the bridge across uh, the Olawalu stream, you'll enter a burial ground and there's all these markers there. And it's considered a place with choke mana, lots of mana a sacred place. And this is where the night marchers appear a lot. And Jason's like, okay, so Olawalu on the moon of Ku and Lono, there are night marchers sightings a lot. And he's like, you know, people see the night marchers all the time. You can look it up right now. You can see that, you know, at the Pacific, the Davis Pacific Center in Oahu is built over a night marchers trail and people have seen night marchers there. People build their houses over night marchers trails and they'll feel the night marchers step on them at night. And they have to get like a, a, a shaman, for a lack of a better word, a, a, a kahuna to come and do ceremonies to um, 
to remove the night marchers, to get the night marchers to march around their house. And and there's people I I've even, you know, talked to people who've been up in the crater, another place that they see night marchers a lot. And uh there's a kid that Neil told me about, one of his students that saw the night marchers when he was doing a solo up at the crater. And he said that he heard the drums. And then this guy came up and stood over him and looked down at him, a Hawaiian warrior with a big bird feather crest and a like a big bird feather coat. And so as we're walking along, I'm just getting like chills thinking about this. And so, of course, I was just like, well, I kind of want to go into Oluwalu. And if I wanted to go into one of these places, would you show me? And he's like, well, dude, I don't know. You know, wh- why are you going in there? And I explained to him that, and this is getting back to your original question, A.B., I promise I'm getting there, but I explained to him that- <laughs> Please please continue. I just, <laughs> I, I just moved to Hawaii. At, you know, I'd been there about a week. And that was the year that our friend, Dave Pegg, had committed suicide. My buddy, Tripp, had committed suicide in Texas. My friend Scott Harris, another climber, had committed suicide. Uh, he, had, he was living in Nashville at the time. All climbers. Uh, Flying Brian McRae had committed suicide. Um, my buddy Benji that I put up, El Gavilan, that we're just talking about with, died in his sleep that year. And I, I'm trying to think there, there might have been another. But in any case, I'd lost five good friends, either to suicide or just random death. And and I turned 50. I was 50 years old. And I was at a, a place of, uh, you know, my marriage was kind of on the rocks at the time, too. And I was at a place of spirit. I was in a low spiritual place. And and I told Jason, you know, if. If I'm exposed to something that is beyond explanation, something mysterious, something sacred, something unexplainable, well, that's what we live for, isn't it? You know, those moments of transcendence. And he's like, okay, dude, I think you've got the right attitude. I'm going to show you how to enter Oluwalu and you can go check it out. And so... I did. I went up there uh, one day and we got to the bridge. And when I got to the bridge to cross over into the burial grounds in Oluwalu, I got a call from my ex's hula teacher, her kumu, her hula kumu, who was a big kahuna of, you know, hula and Hawaiiana, you know, the Hawaiian lore. And she's like, don't go in there. The spirits don't want you in there. They don't want to be, you know, bothered with you. It's your uh, turn around, go back right now. And I'm like, well, I'm going in there. And so we get to the bridge and we cross the bridge and we start to enter the burial grounds. And Jason is like, I I don't want to go in there. I'm getting a weird feeling about this, too. So I was like, "Okay, I'm going. But I'm going in. I'm going to do this. I feel good about it. And. My buddy Neil had given given me a, a, a oli, an oli, which is a chant to ask permission to enter. And so as I walked in through the burial grounds and all these things are marked with numbers and you can really see 
I started to get like a little eerie feeling inside. I started to get kind of a a funky feeling. And it was kind of like more than you would expect to feel, even given the fact that I'd been told not to go in there and all that. I just kept looking behind me, feeling like something was going on, feeling weird. But I just kind of, you know, marked it off to just the usual heebie-jeebies that you would get going into. Because I don't really believe in this stuff, right? Down deep, I'm just skeptical about this, but open, open to something maybe happening. So I walked in. I walked in for two hours up the Olawalu stream, getting closer and closer to the point where it drops in from the other side, from the north side, uh, where the, the the old path was that the royalty took to get there. And I laid down. I set up my. I started to set up my tent. And then I remembered I had to do the Oli. And Neil told me that when you get to the place you want to camp, chant this Oli, and if the forest noises go away, that's to be expected. But if they come back, then it's generally considered that you've received welcome to stay there. So it was getting dark, and I I chanted the Oli, and the forest got quiet, and then it just stayed quiet. And I was like, oh, well, I should probably pick another place to camp. And so I walked further in as it's getting more and more dark. And keep in mind, I had crossed the stream many times and the water was really high and there was no way I was going to be able to get out that night. It was hours hours in and I couldn't do the stream crossings in the dark. So I got to another point and I chanted the Oli and the forest got quiet and it remained quiet. And so I went to a third place, chanted the Oli, the forest stayed quiet, and I was just like, fuck, I'm really scared now. I really don't want to be here. I really want to go home, but I couldn't. I had to. So I set up my tent, and I'm like, you're really dumb. You really shouldn't have done this. You really, you know, I, I started getting scared, and then I got into the tent because there were some uh, mosquitoes, and the whole forest was dead leaves. So you could hear any step, any kind of noise in the dead leaves. And while I was in the tent, I heard something fall into the leaves close to the tent. And I like sat up and I kind of looked around. And then I heard something else fall about five minutes later. It was closer to the tent. And then I heard something like hit the tent. And then for the next like six hours, every five to 15 minutes, something would hit the tent. And I was just like, what is going on? And I started to get scared and I started to get, you know, irrationally terrified. Like I've never felt, you know, like when you're climbing and you get into a situation like an alpine climb or something and you're so scared and you're just like, I wish I wasn't here. I just want to be someplace else. I just want to I go home. And then you're still there. And then like the taste in your mouth changes, you know, yeah, it's like penny, you're sucking. Penny taste. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're sucking on a sink fitting, you know, like a brass right. sink fitting or something. Exactly. That started to happen. And <clears throat> I'm not sure why, because I don't really believe in this stuff. Right. I really I really kind of feel like I'm a rational person. I feel like I'm more, you know, on the hot old side of things. But this shit is happening to me at some point. 
along around dawn, right around the time the night marchers usually appear, by the way, the thing stopped hitting the tent and I started to relax. And I remember laying down on my back. I had my hands kind of crossed on my chest and I was watching on the side of the tent the the reflection of the leaves. The moon was up. It was the moon of Ku, right? This like that's when they did all the sacrifices back in the day. And I just see the leaves, the shape of the leaves kind of waving in the little breeze on the side of the tent as I'm resting on my back. It's kind of the moon coming through the mosquito netting and the leaves just kind of moving. And then all of a sudden, like a shadow just blocks the leaves of the tent. So I, I like rolled over onto my stomach really quickly and looked out through the mosquito netting. And there was a shape standing maybe like 20 feet away. And before I could really get a good look at it, I like covered my head up, you know, like they're, like you're supposed to, hoping that I was not going to be, you know, decapitated on the spot and become a night marcher for the rest of my, you know, days on earth or my days in what not on earth, right? So anyway, I, I sat there and I just, what I, what I did, what I, I didn't pray. I don't know how to pray in Hawaiian, right? I, I just said, I'm a stranger here. I've just moved to this island. You know, I'm asking permission to be here. I'm asking your permission to be here. I'm spiritually at a low point and I'm, I'm at a loss. You know, I'm at a loss. I'm low and I'm asking permission. And then I like peeked out from under my arms and the shape was gone. And I rolled back over. And the weird thing now, I I thought about this a lot, obviously, right? I'm like, what? How can I rationalize this? Okay. And I thought, okay, well, maybe the things that were hitting my tent is I had set up under a Java plum tree or something, right? And it was just fruit that was falling. And I thought maybe a deer had wandered in and blocked the light. But the strange thing is two two things that are unexplainable. Because only later did I kind of rationalize it. One thing that's unexplainable is you could hear every step in those leaves. It was like loud, crinkling leaves. And there's no way even a deer could have got that close to my tent without me hearing the approach. Just no way. I was already on edge listening for that. And the second strange thing that I can't explain was once that happened, I got incredibly calm and I went right to sleep. And from that moment on, I've been completely relaxed in Hawaii. I felt like I was welcomed. Inside, in my heart, I felt like I was welcome. And that's, to me, unexplainable. I should have been more uptight, right? I should have been more on edge after seeing a shape that I couldn't couldn't explain. And yet, I wasn't, you know? So, I don't know. That's a, lo- a very long-winded way of answering that question about, do I, do I bring these things on myself? I don't know. Probably... Yes, in some ways, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't have gone in there, right? 
in some ways. And I've had people that I've told that story to, you know, Hawaiians say, you know what, dude, you shouldn't have gone in there, asshole. <laughs> right? But then in my own, in my own being, I know that my intention in going in there after losing all those friends and at, at being in a spiritually low place, I believe that I went in there with the correct attitude and the correct state of heart, you know, and state of mind. So I don't know. I don't know. I think that these experiences come to you if you open yourself to the possibility that you don't know everything and you and you are welcoming those experiences to come in, you know. I think if if we if we close ourselves off to the possibility of something mysterious and larger than us and unexplainable, then they won't happen. You won't see the ghost, right? The night marchers won't visit you. But if you open yourself to the possibility, even if you're skeptic like I am and very rational, then perhaps that's all that it takes. The interesting thing about all of that, I mean, well, one of... <laughs> One of the many interesting things. Yeah, one of the many interesting things. You did answer my question in a really uh, beautiful way, Hefe. Um, What you're saying through like uh, lots of very riveting and specific storytelling is is more pointing to this general sense of being connected to a place on a spiritual level, and uh, climbing is is definitely something that gives us gives us that to varying degrees. Um, and I think that, you know, if there's a spectrum between yourself and maybe Honold, there's degrees of opening yourself up to those kinds of mystical encounters or maybe even mystical is the wrong word, but just the spiritual sense of, of being in a place and being connected to it. And so you've been in, you've been in Maui now for, you know, almost a decade. Um, we really wanted to like bring you on the show to, you know, to hear some of, <laughs> to hear your ghost stories, but we also wanted to like hear about the climbing as well. Um, because I think a lot of people don't really know, they don't associate high Hawaii with, with climbing. Um, you're just a prolific root developer. I'm sure you've put up, you know, at least 10 or 20 roots in Hawaii. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think the, the, the quote you this see, week, yeah, this week, um, tell, tell us, just give us a, you know, give our listeners a sense of what the climbing's like. Tell us about your connection to the climbing there and, and, um, yeah, just give us the overview of what climbing well, in Hawaii is like. Yeah, and and I, I, could I just sort of color this a little bit because I Please. I showed up there not too long after you had been there. Um, I right. think your first yeah. development had gone in, and I just got this very much this sense of of almost like this. You know, we were just talking about sort of you know spiritualism or or these myths or whatever you want to call them of you know Hawaiian culture and and like your arrival to the to the Maui climbing scene. You know, and that's kind of what we're talking pretty specific about that but um you know i think it's almost like has this sort of mythic quality like you know you, this guy shows up and is just like armed with with knowledge and and motivation and i feel like there was a handful of almost like 
apostles that that welcomed you to the island and said, "All right, let's get some work done and and like change the scene here." Um, and I don't know, you don't have to like put credence to that that idea that I have, oh. but um, it it yeah, kind I of mean, felt well, like that when I was there. Like every, there was some some people were just like, "All right." Here we go. Like, well, those people that bring knowledge wind up uh, strapped to a cliff and, and have their eyes pecked out by ravens for all eternity. And anyone with an apostle winds up on a cross. So, <laughs> shit. Yeah, it's not too late, bro. Like, okay. you keep wandering into sacred valleys and fucking around, you'll definitely end up pinned to like a, the hood of a Chevy or something. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've had those. I have had those. I have had those experiences, believe me, right? It's a it's difficult being a howley going out into the sure. into the wilds of uh of Maui, going out to the backside, all the places that I climb are very local, right? Sure. And, and and the the cool thing is and the thing that I must say is that for the most part, the the people around here, the locals around here are very open to Climbing, there's something that that resonates. There's something very Hawaiian uh, about climbing. I mean, there's even sayings that they have in uh, ancient Hawaii, like uh, "You're climbing the cliffs of Niihau" is a saying for going through a hard time in your life. And in the the Hawaiian martial art of lua, uh, one of the ways to to advance is to climb and and show your prowess climbing cliffs. Right. Uh, so it's it's a part of the culture. So I, I've had had pretty good luck. You know, I've had some right. run ins, of course. I've had tires slashed and I've had people, you know, want to fight. <laughs> you know, like, let's go. You want one fight, bro? You want one fight right now? You want one fight? Let's go right now. Let's go to the park over there right now. We're going to fight. But generally, it's not about climbing. It's because I pulled in front of them to get gas. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> What what did you find when you you got there and and um you know as far as the scene and what was kind of your your path of route development and what would we find if we showed up in Maui today to to go climbing? Uh, when I got here, there was just a, a a couple of routes, right? There was some top rope anchors at a place called Plenikiave, and there was a a bolted route at a a place called McGregor's, which is on the uh, on the shore. Uh, it is really bad, you know. Please, if you do come to Maui to go climbing, don't don't go to McGregor's. It's I think it might be on Mountain Project. Anything that's on Mountain Project, just give a wide berth to. All right, just get in touch with your uncle Hefe, and let me take you to the goods. So when I got is here, McGregor's there, there was a, very little... a Hawaiian name. Hefe is that a <laughs> yeah, McGreg- exactly exactly yes it's got an apostrophe mm-hmm. in it after the C. <laughs> that's right that's right uh yeah it's a point and there's a lighthouse there but uh no the the there was very little little climbing developed um you know there was one uh a crack climb up on the big wall there and and, and a few climbs you know when i when i wrote First about this, I wrote like a little TNB, one of the, a little e-blast thing for rock and ice back in the day, and I could not believe the vitriol that came at me after suggesting that there wasn't, you know, a pre-existing climbing scene here. Uh, some people were pissed off, and they're like, "You're taking credit for the Boulder problem that people have been," but you know, for the life of me, like. There was not much climbing going on, guys. I, you know, uh, I'll, I'll name some names. 
Drew Sulock, uh, Jason Manganon, Neil Stotts, Matt Stelmach, uh, Jason Dragowski, Guillermo Maroon, Chris Janiszewski. Those guys climbed before I got here. And, and Guillermo and Chris, Guillermo Maroon and Chris Janiszewski, those guys are fucking hosses. They're amazing. They're great climbers. They're 514 climbers. But it, it really did kind of kick off uh, uh, when I arrived. Um, and I'm not trying to take credit for something. There was a few climbs here. So I, I'm just, that's my preamble to this. When I got here, there was a, a few top ropes and a, and a couple of bolted climbs. Now we, we slowly kind of uh, developed uh, hundreds of climbs here. There's, there's hundreds of climbs. There is uh, uh, hundreds of boulder problems as well. There's climbing here from 5.8 to 5.14B. There's uh, projects that are 9A here that are bolted and, and ready to go. Uh, we got visits from Ethan Pringle, um, who confirmed grades and, and other climbers have come through and confirmed all this. And there's just really, really good climbing here. Everything from uh, super steep uh, sport climbing, rifle-like, arsenal-like uh, uh, steep climbing to uh, nine pitch, you know, seven pitch right now, potentially nine pitch routes. And, uh, and it's all here, you know, and I, I, I can't go into too much detail about it because, uh, it's still, um, there's still access issues around some of this stuff. Now, some of this stuff is on public land and it, it should be okay to climb. But if, you know, we have 250,000 tourists a month that come to Maui. In Maui itself, we only have a couple hundred thousand people, maybe 180,000 people. At any given time, there's more tourists on the island than there are residents, you know? So if we started to, to give coordinates and start to go too specific, then the place could easily be overrun and, and there would be access issues uh, at these places. The other thing is, is it's just incredibly fragile ecosystems here. That said, you know, if you really want to climb, you will be able to reach out and, and find the climbing. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard to climb. We did have a hiccup with one area in the West Mauis. It's called Avalua. It's one of the gulches in the West Mauis. And it had about 30 bolted sport climbs, all of them 30 meters. And it was just a tremendously beautiful rock. It's called Trachyte. And it's uh, very similar to the Waco tanks, the uh, cyanite porphyry at the Waco tanks. In fact, it's exactly like Waco tanks rock, except for it weathered outside of the crust. So it's it's exactly like the cyanite porphyry at Waco with the same Wacos, the same little iron rock edges. And, uh, and, and this is a typical story. Uh, uh, in terms of climbing in Maui, in my experience. The first thing that happened is we found this place and we're just like, shit, this is beautiful. Let's, let's develop it. And then, you know, some people went in there and, and bolted it. And then we had a run-in with the uh, DLNR, the Department of Land and Natural Resources. And 
it was what we were widely panned. You know, they they said there's endangered uh, endangered species of plants in there, and it was released on the news that climbers had installed uh, a rung next to one of the most highly endangered plants that there was only like this is the only place in the world that it existed and these climbers had put a rung next to it and the whole area got shut down like that i was actually interviewed on the news and asked what i thought about it and i told them straight up you know this is not what we're about any closures are absolutely fine we are all about protecting resources first and foremost and preserving the Aina, the land. Absolutely, 100%. That's the way I still feel today. And recreation comes second, okay? So we we completely were fine with the closure. But then about four or five months ago, I was uh, summoned to meet with the DLNR. And me and Coco Dave Elberg, another guy that I should mention because he's a prolific developer. Chris knows, you know, Kalus knows Coco Dave. We love. There's a love affair between us three. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a three way kind of thing. We love each other. But Four uh, way if you uh, count the coconuts. <laughs> the co- yeah right. But uh, uh, me and Coco Dave went in for a meeting, and we had a meeting with the DLNR, and it went something like this. We sat down at a table with a guy named Bill. And a woman named Stephanie, I believe was her name. And Bill, his kuleana, his, his kuleana is uh, your responsibility. His kuleana was to take care of Avalua, which is the area where we were climbing, uh, this beautiful area. And he said, you guys, you really fucked up. You really screwed up by going up in there and putting, putting these, these climbs up in there. And you're really bad. And it was a bad thing that you did, and it's terrible, and my boss doesn't like it, and I don't like it, but you can climb up there. (laughs) And we were just like, oh, thanks, you know, thanks a lot. Like, what's going on, right? Okay, we didn't want to ask too many questions about it, but, but, uh, and I just told him straight out. Right, that's right, that's right. I was like, you guys are being very fair here, you know. He was like, he did say, you know, and, and I'm I'm cognizant that the DLNR will listen to this podcast because they do follow social media. And so keep in mind, I, I know that they're going to listen to this. And I respect those dudes. I'm not just blowing smoke here. I, I really like Bill and I really like what I've seen of the DLNR. And I feel like what they did and allowing us to climb in there, not liking it, and yet respecting our rights was very cool, very uh, uh, upstanding. Okay, I'll, I'll preface all this with that. But uh, I told Bill, you know, I respect your decision. And he said, you know, uh, you're going to have to, uh, uh, those bolts that you put in there, uh, they have a lifespan. And, uh, and, and when those bolts wear out, you're not allowed to replace those bolts. You know, they're going to be like, just a few years, right? And I was like, well, actually they're glue-in titanium bolts and the lifespan is probably more like 50 years. So, I, you know, my response was, it's, that's great. Let's We can work with that. Right. And I told Bill, I said, man, the reason that we can work with that is because we are going to be such good users that you are going to want us to be in there climbing because we are going to step up 
to the level that you've never seen a user group step up. And we're going to work with you and we're going to be we're going to be hand in glove with the DLNR and the protection of the natural resources in Maui. And I firmly believe that's what's going to happen. Okay, so we left that meeting with the intention to go up uh, on a hike with Bill and look at the crag. And so about a week later, Coco, Dave, and I met Bill in the parking lot, and we all hiked up to check out Avalua. And as we were hiking up, we were talking about identifying all the plants. So this is a, a, a opiuma. This is an opiuma tree. This is a, a willy willy tree. And he started to point out all of the plants, and he'd say something like, "Well, this is this is not endangered. Here's one of the grasses. Uh, this is this is threatened, but not endangered. And here's a another plant, and it's a uh, it's not threatened. And then this plant here is a uh, is." is not threatened either or endangered. And and Dave at one point just said, well, would you please show us the plant that, that we were impacting that was highly, 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 highly one of a kind endangered? And he said, you know, I think I owe you an apology because there never was a plant. We were mistaken and there never was a plant that was highly endangered. Now, Bill respect to that guy. I love that guy. He is like such a, a cool dude. But the problem with this story is, and I hope many people hear this, is that I was portrayed on the news at at six o'clock and at eight o'clock and, you know, in the newspaper as apologizing profusely for climbers uh, endangering a highly, highly endangered plant and it was all fabricated, right? And so when somebody comes to Maui, like my buddy Tyler, he hears something like this. He heard, yeah, there's a guy here. His name is Jeff Jackson. But, you know, and, and there's he's asking about climbing. He's, yeah, there's this guy, Jeff Jackson, and he climbs here. But he, like, uprooted one of the last plants that was existing in Hawaii. And this is, like, widely disseminated. And I am demonized as the bad, you know, howly motherfucker that uprooted the last, you know, opiuma plant or whatever in Hawaii. And it's a, it's a bit of a drag, right? Now, in the, in the grand scheme of things, that I we were, live with it. I hadn't realized that we were giving a platform to such a nefarious character, Chris. <laughs> I know, exactly. Like, <laughs> Or giving, a, giving me a platform to air my grievances about the DLNR. But, you know, I, I do... I do really respect the fact that he would be open to to going ahead and admitting that. Uh, and so I really don't have much to complain about. But this is this has been the a typical path where there might be resistance at first against climbing, but uh, generally the locals, the uh, DLNR, and the the people in charge they seem really really cool and really open to the recreational usage uh, of of rock climbing. They really do seem open to that, which has been a, a really nice surprise for me. Uh, growing up in Texas, you know, I was always really having to sneak around, getting shot at, getting kicked off of, of land and things because of private ownership. But these people in Hawaii, they, 
they seem to have a, a really respectful and positive attitude toward climbing. And it gives me a lot of hope that, uh, that we can have a positive impact on the community. Because if some of these areas, some of these, these wonderful areas that have great moderate climbing, if they could be opened to the public uh, with responsible usage and uh, signage and kiosk, informational kiosk and clear trails and things like that, then we could take some of the pressure off of the oceans. I mean, all of the recreational usage takes place on the beaches and the beaches are overrun and the ocean and the coral is is being impacted hugely. And we have the opportunity to bring people Malka, right, inland and uh, and have a really positive effect long term on the ecology of Hawaii and Maui in specific. That's interesting to hear you say. I'm glad to hear that note of optimism, you know, especially considering that Maui's got some just unique challenges and considerations given the fact that it's an island and that there's cultural issues and ecological issues as well. One thing I was curious to ask you about, given your kind of perspective on climbing that you've been climbing for so long and developing roots for so long, um, you know, we're kind of entering this phase in uh, uh, here in the mainland on uh, in the U.S. that's slightly different. You know, there's so many climbers now and there's so many people who are out using these resources, who are out trying to be developers, you know, and uh, we want to be welcoming. We want to not be elitist and so forth. But there is, a, I think Chris and I have both kind of made arguments on this show and elsewhere for having kind of elitist attitudes toward the way roots are developed and, you know, knowing what that plant is that, you know, before you like go and put a bolt in or understanding that there's petroglyphs in the desert that shouldn't be bolted. That was a, you know, another case I'm sure you're familiar with. Right. Inevitably as climbing grows and grows, there's going to be one fucking bad apple who ruins it for everyone who chips mm. boulders or who chips roots and, it's hard to know what to deal, what the solution is. You know, we want to always point toward more education and less, less of the things that we hate about climbing anyway. But I, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm trying to ask, um, I, I just love to hear your perspective on what the right approach is in terms of development, in terms of growing the sport, but doing it with so many um, obvious ways that it could all be ruined for everyone for future generations. Like imagine if, if it wasn't you and Coco Dave in that office, you know, and it was two people with disagreeable personalities who didn't know anything about the sport or who didn't do it the right way. who didn't put the roots in the right way to begin with. It could easily go wrong. And I fear for a future in which um, we're faced with, fewer people such as yourself and more people, you know, in the, that don't have the right attitude or just, uh, you know, maybe aren't in the positions of developing roots, but just being users who are, who are ruining the resource for everyone. So how do you think about the state of climbing right now with so many people entering the sport, you know, that note of optimism about, being able to enjoy this resource on Maui or, or is there any part of you that's like a little bit scared about what's to come? I started climbing uh, in 1977 
it was obviously a completely different world where I, I didn't run into in the places where I climbed, you know, I, I wouldn't run into another hiker. I wouldn't run into another uh, person at all, another person, much less another climber. And so it, it was it's a completely different world that we're in right now. And, uh, you know, I, I'm old. I'm an old person. So uh, we're we're uh, we're notoriously behind the times. If you when you get old, you kind of get stuck in a rut. But yeah, cranky. And as if we know, as if we have anything, I really don't have anything to add. I'm really kind of dumb in many, many ways. And I don't think I can speak to what we should do. But I will say attitudinally that I think that uh, the attitude uh, of a first ascensionist, it should be one uh, of humility and gratitude and exploration. You know, people will often they'll be like, oh, thank you, Hefe, for the, your roots. And, and I've always felt like, wow, you know, you don't have to thank me for that. But I feel like I should be giving gratitude for this exploration and the ability to become intimate with the rock on the level that you get to become intimate with a root and a section of rock. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's all a gift to, to the first ascensionist. So, you know, there's, there probably needs to be more of that uh, uh, with these people that, that wish to develop, you know, people that develop they're not they're not special they're just getting a gift from the rock they're getting to have this experience and i don't see that all the time i see people who are developing expecting to be lauded and celebrated as if we're doing something special we're getting we're getting as much as we're giving i don't i don't care what you do as a first ascensionist you can bolt a really run out scary route and uh Alex Honnold's going to come out and fucking do your lifetime project without a rope and Jonathan Segrist is going to warm up on your project and like your place in all this is very small you're very small you know and and recognizing uh uh with some humility the fact that you're really not anything and and you're getting something from this whole experience and just fucking shut up and accept criticism and just be a good person. Try to be a good person. Now that is laudable. When you go out into your community and you give something back, not just a root, who, fu who fucking cares about your root, right? doesn't matter. But give something, go volunteer your time, go do something that's actually useful. Do something for kids or elders in your community. You know, and uh, and that's that's all I really that's all I can really say is that just check your attitude and make sure that you're coming at this from the right in the from the right direction, not just putting up new roots. But if you're living your life correctly, then you're not going to put bolts over petroglyphs. You're going to you're going to have a sensitivity, a level of sensitivity that will help you to see that. Right. If you're awake, if you're practicing just being awake in your life to the way that things are, then that's way more important than putting up a good route, you know? And I think a lot of the problems that you see in the climbing community comes down to people just not being aware, not being awake, being selfish, not wanting to give something. 
approaching climbing as, you know, something that you're taking rather than something you're giving. It is possible to climb in a way that you're giving. You know, that is possible. It sounds crazy, but you can do it. I mean, how? what's your attitude when you're holding the rope for your partner? Is it that, I hope he falls, I, I hope that she, you know, doesn't get past the point that I got to, I hope that they fall so that I can look good, or are you like sending good energy up that rope? Are you sending good vibes, good mana and and uh, are you pono? Are you are you are you doing things in a righteous way? And that's that's really what it comes down to, man. You know, is are you living your life in a in a positive, righteous way? And are you awake to what is? Because if you are awake to what is, then you're going to look around and you're going to see there are plants here, right? I my root needs to go this way to protect those plants. There are petroglyphs here. I'm not going to put bolts over these petroglyphs. I'm not going to allow the rope to hang over these petroglyphs. It's like waking up, waking up and just living in a way that's uh, positive and righteous. I, I know that that's, that's kind of a, a I, I don't know, it's not a very deep answer, but a lot of our problems, not just in climbing, but in the world, could be addressed through people just waking up and living uh, in a way that's giving rather than taking. On the latest Patreon bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, we take you on a journey of sight and sound, of pin scars and off-widths, of slander and rigid definitions as we tackle the mystery of the Salate's legendary Pitch 19. Once heralded as perhaps the crux of the greatest free climb in the world, Pitch 19 then suddenly disappeared from the record, being sucked into the seething void of obscurity that is the twilight zone of revisionist history. Become a rope gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and join us on a dangerous and exciting search for Pitch 19. Was it murdered by a German prince? Was it just conveniently shunned like a difficult in-law? Or is Pitch 19 poised for its harrowing revenge? Join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout and these ridiculous promos. On today's final bit, we welcome you to another exciting round of Who's Is This Anyway? This is the game show where you try to guess which climber you're hearing try hard. Today's comes from our second female contestant. And as you'll hear, this clip shows her trying to stick one big move over and over again. Let's listen. So who's is this anyway?
She's only 5'6", but she has a plus 7 ape index, which makes her climb like somebody nearly 6 feet tall. She's climbed at least 4 514Ds. She hates knee bars and loves slabs. She recently got her first ever flapper while climbing in the gym, which she blamed on having mom skin. The answer for you playing at home is the amazing Paige Clausen. In this clip, Paige is pushing her albatross wingspan to the limits on Groove Train, a notoriously reachy 514B at the Taipan Wall in the Grampians of Australia. That route is one of dozens of 514s Paige has climbed over her incredible career. That also includes first female ascents of Dreamcatcher, 14D in Squamish, and Shadow Boxing, also 14D in Rifle. Congrats to Paige on becoming a mom recently, and even though you're getting flappers with your mom skin, we are sure you'll be crushing hard again soon. Thanks for playing, everyone, and remember, sending is never silent. We'll see you here next time on Who's Is This Anyway? You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalutz, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast on the internet. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com.